Welcome to TG2Cast. I'm your host, Aaron Blackwilder. Today I'll be discussing motivation with Alfie Cohen. Alfie Cohen is the author of 14 books, including Punished by Rewards, The Schools Our Children Deserve, Unconditional Parenting, The Homework Myth, The Myth of the Spoiled Child, and most recently, Schooling Beyond Measure. He's been described by Time Magazine as perhaps the country's most outspoken critic of education's fixation on grades and test scores. Cohen lives actually in the Boston area and virtually at www.alfiecohen.org. Thank you for joining me today, Alfie. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about motivation. Um, Could you help us understand it a little bit more by giving us a definition of it? Well, if I can turn the question around, I don't think it's helpful to think of motivation as a single entity. And in fact, thinking of it that way gets us into a lot of trouble. Uh, The question is not how motivated students are or anyone is. Rather, the question is, how are students motivated? So for some decades now, psychologists have been distinguishing between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And even people who recognize those modifiers often forget that there are different kinds and resort or revert to talking about motivation as if it were a single thing that you could have more or less of. Intrinsic motivation refers to um, a desire to engage in a task, a commitment to a value in its own right, so you find it pleasurable or worthy. Extrinsic motivation means you do something so that something outside the task, extrinsic to it, will happen, such as you get a reward for doing it or doing it well, or you avoid a punishment. And it's not just that these are two qualitatively different things, it's that Intrinsic motivation tends to decline in the face of extrinsic motivators. So the question should never focus on motivation itself, because there are lots of kids who are highly motivated to do well in school, but it's extrinsic motivation, which means um, a lower quality of life, less intrinsic motivation, and ultimately poorer performance. So are there times when teachers should leverage extrinsic motivation? No. In my entire career, in all of the hundreds of classrooms I've watched, where I've been a teacher, where I've been a student in all the research I've been through, I have never found a single instance where extrinsic motivation is necessary or desirable. Now, that doesn't mean that we just sit back and let kids teach themselves. It doesn't mean that we don't guide and provide help. It doesn't mean that we don't work with kids to create um, a culture, a climate, a curriculum um, that will tap their interest in the world, their questions about themselves. Um, The teachers have an important role to play to stimulate and nourish kids' desire to learn. But I have never seen an instance where an extrinsic inducement or an ordinary language, a reward or a punishment, does anything but harm. Hmm. So what are the consequences of using 
extrinsic motivators when trying to engage a child in learning? Uh, first of all, they often piss people off, um, understandably so, because these are examples of trying to control people. And on some level, even small children know that's what's going on. They're inherently manipulative, and they often push back. Even when they don't push back and they internalize um, this pressure to do well, it leaves them feeling, according to research, without a sense of satisfaction and pride in their own accomplishments, um, as well as um, a desire to escape this whenever they can. And often it leads to less creativity, critical thinking, and higher-order problem-solving skills. So rewards and punishments in the short term can sometimes lead to um, more of something, a quantitative jump in performance or productivity. But almost never can any reward or punishment lead to a fuller understanding of an idea. So even by bottom line performance criteria, rewards like punishments aren't merely ineffective. They're positively counterproductive. And partly uh, as an explanation for that, but also as a disturbing outcome in its own right, rewards and punishments undermine the interest that kids take in what they're doing, their curiosity. And in my mind, that would be a bad thing, even if it didn't have um, an adverse effect on performance. Mm, okay. I know we all have those students who are easily motivated to learn mm-hmm. and try new things, and those who are reluctant. Yeah. How should teachers respond when a child does not want to make an effort or does not express an interest in a class? By looking first at A, the curriculum, what? the student has been asked to do, B, the sense of of, um, feeling part of a a caring, collaborative community that tends to support even reluctant learners and make them more interested in what's going on, and C, the extent to which the kids themselves play an important role in making decisions about what they're going to learn and how and when and with whom and under what circumstances. The the kids we see as or write off as reluctant learners who need pushing, coaxing, pressure, consequences, which is a euphemism for punishment, or positive reinforcement, which is a euphemism for manipulation by reward, typically the problem is less with the kid than with what the kid has been asked or made to do and the circumstances under which that happens. And let's keep in mind that there is enormous difference for a given student across different classrooms, teachers, subjects, and tasks. So if a kid has you in English and me in math, we get together in the faculty lounge and you roll your eyes at this reluctant learner, and I say, what are you talking about? This kid can't wait to get at it. Same kid, different teachers different topics even within a given class a kid may may uh, push back uh, and resist certain certain tasks and topics so rather than seeing the kid as the problem how do we fix him or her 
We need to see our pedagogy and curriculum, which of course takes a lot more courage for a teacher to acknowledge the problem is in the system, not with the student. And under no circumstances should we resort to what I call a doing-to approach, which always backfires in some way, as opposed to a working-with approach, um, where it takes a lot of coaching and help and care and talent and time to get good at figuring out how can we create something, a situation, where, where each kid in different ways is going to be invited to find it um, if not invigorating, then at least intriguing. I like that. Now, you talk about inviting in and doing with as opposed to doing to. What role does the student-teacher relationship play in the success of a child? Well, if you think back on the teachers you remember most, um, it doesn't take long to figure out that long after we've forgotten the bunch of facts we had shoved into our short-term memories, we remember the human beings we connected with, the ones who were assholes, uh, the ones who didn't have time for us, the ones who needed to be in control and have all the attention, and the ones who gave a damn, the ones who made a personal connection with us, the ones who followed up on something we said two weeks ago, the ones who expressed confidence in our ability to do something, and who did more asking than telling. So much is about the, the relationship, that caring connection. You know right away, if you're a kid, which, which teachers really are concerned about you and which teachers value you unconditionally for who you are as opposed to valuing you conditionally, that is, as a function of what you've done, who seem to be pleased with you or accepting of you only when you do impressive stuff academically or only when you're well-behaved. That kind of positive reinforcement and support is almost worse than none at all. Also, the greatest teachers are not only those, I, I feel I need to add, who create positive, unconditionally supportive, caring relationships with each student, which, I, again, I want to say in parentheses, all rewards and punishments undermine, whether we see that immediately or not. But also the kind of teachers who actively work to create caring relationships among the students. And, and that, that's a whole separate topic, you know, that I and many other people have written about, what it means to create those bonds, to help kids experience a class as a community. Um, among other things, it requires the abolition of competition, which sets kids against one another, so they're led to experience other people's success as their own failure, and vice versa. So, great teaching is about the relationships we, we create with each kid, the relationships we, we foster and help students um, create with one another. Worth stuff worth learning as opposed to memorizing facts for tests, um, and giving kids a central role, not only individually, but together through class meetings, for example, in deciding how we're going to arrange the furniture in here, what books we're going to read, how assessment should work. Um, those are the ingredients of a working with classroom, 
And the teachers who are good at that and get better every year are the ones who would never dream of using grades, stickers, point systems, trophies, certificates, threats, and other, you know, techniques that are better used for training pets than for teaching kids. It seems there's always this move to simplify teaching with worksheets and this modern gamification of learning, and it seems to dehumanize and ignore that our primary role is to build relationships with kids. What are your thoughts? Right, and gamification isn't just unhelpful. It's not just that it's a, a, a waste of time or beside the point. Trying to turn learning into the equivalent of a video game with badges and points and prizes and contests actively undermines the possibility of kids being at the center of the classroom and um, kids experiencing the ideas to which they're being exposed as intriguing in their own right. What rewards do, whether they're the cutesy little bells and whistles of video game type things, um, many of which are often you know, on, in software or in apps and so on. What all rewards do, A's, praise, points, is they are not only controlling, but they also send the message that whatever you're doing now in terms of an intellectual um, uh, task is devalued. It's a means to an end. The more you reward people for doing something, the more they learn that whatever they're doing is less interesting in its own right. If I say to you, you get 10 points for doing X, you are now less interested in X than you were before. And this is one of the most um, thoroughly researched and multiply replicated findings in all of educational and social psychology that rewards undermine interest. This is true in the workplace, it's true in the classroom, it's true at the home and everywhere else. Rewards and punishments are not opposites, by the way. They're two sides of the same coin. Um, and both of them can get only one thing ever, which is um, temporary compliance, but at enormous cost. Mm, okay. In Punished by Rewards, you discuss the things worth knowing, and you also emphasize the idea of choice and autonomy for students. How should teachers balance teaching the necessary basic skills needed to learn with what students want to learn? Well, it's not a, a balance, so you do a little this much of one and that much of the other. Um, the skills and knowledge, the capabilities and proficiencies uh, that we think are valuable, which should not be over-specified, um, by the way, um, should not be excessive or, or, or overly detailed. Um, in other words, it's fine to say we want kids to be numerate and to understand the relationships among quantities. Um, that makes sense to me as a goal, saying all kids must memorize the definition of irrational numbers, you know, or, or recognize a Venn diagram. Now we're not talking about legitimate mathematical outcomes. We're talking about a level of specificity that's almost going to force us to control kids' 
um, and make them hate math, by the way, in many cases. But rather, to get to your question, it is through kids' interests and desires and questions that we approach the skills and capabilities we hope they'll acquire. It's by starting with the kids and what they want to know and what intrigues them in, in which we embed the capabilities that we want. So, you know, you don't teach the, the operations in arithmetic separately by direct instruction, for the most part, and worksheets and textbooks. You know, here's how you borrow from the tens place. Now do 50 more problems, some of them even at home. Um, rather, you start with the questions little kids are curious about, like how fast they're growing. Or how can how can how much pizza can each kid take so that there's enough for everyone? Or how many of us have birthdays during the summer? Or what would it take to redesign your bedroom in a cool way using only a hundred dollars? Whatever it is, you start with the things that are interest and you teach them the stuff and help them to learn the stuff in a context and for a purpose. And when that happens. It becomes intrinsically motivating to them, and they tend to acquire stuff and be, and be curious. And if you're in doubt about whether this topic matters or they've acquired what they need in order to answer a question they had, you ask them. You keep checking in with them individually and collectively so that even the goals, not only the methods, are negotiated together in a classroom that is about student-centered focus on meaningful questions. Mm, yeah. I truly believe all teachers go into the profession because they really care about kids and want to help them be successful and inspire learning. However, when students are not responding, the teacher relies on threats and consequences to help ensure kids are working. What are some ways teachers can avoid defaulting to rewards and consequences to help engage and inspire? Well, let's be clear that just because kids are working doesn't mean we've succeeded. They can be working without learning anything valuable. Um, we can be teaching without them learning anything valuable. Rewards and punishments can make kids do a task, but they can never help kids become excited about a task. And in fact, they actively get in the way. They can't even jumpstart a reluctant kid. As soon as you introduce a reward or a punishment, you have changed the whole gestalt, the way the student looks at you, at himself or herself, and at the task for the worse. Now, as soon as they're doing it to get a grade or a point or a good job, they are less interested in the learning itself than they were to begin with. And now you have more work to do to undo the harm done by rewards and punishments. The alternative, which I think is implicit in your question, is the series of issues that we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes about making sure the curriculum is worth doing, making sure that kids have a say in it, that they're in a cooperative and caring community, that we ask more than tell, um, and so on. But I also want to be clear that in talking about rewards and punishments in general, 
we can also understand the unique harm done by all grades and rubrics in particular. And we have uh, research on this. I, I think I've read every study that's ever been done on what happens when you give kids grades and focus their attention on them versus not having any grades at all, as opposed to the silly questions like how can we beef up our grades by putting them online or doing so-called standards-based grading, an idea that really helped me to understand the expression lipstick on a pig. Um, (laughs) um, But let's be very clear. The research shows there are three robust differences between giving kids grades and not giving them grades. Those who are graded, number one, become less excited about the learning itself. To the best of my knowledge, every study ever done on this question has found a decreased excitement about learning when kids are doing something for a grade, regardless of whether they end up getting a good grade or a bad grade. The second thing that happens is when they're graded, they tend to pick the easiest possible task when given a choice. Not because they're lazy, but because they're rational. Duh. Of course, you're telling me the point is to get an A in here if I pick a shorter book. I'm going to get what you want. And it's not because I'm lazy or lack motivation. It's because of the system, the use of grades. And the third effect of grades is that they tend to lead kids to think in a shallower fashion. Uh, They're less likely to ask, yeah, but how do we know that? Or doesn't that contradict what we talked about yesterday? And they're more likely to ask, do we need to know this? Is this going to be on the test? And, And the point is to play the game of school. That's why the best teachers I know, um, according to all the criteria we've been talking about of how you authentically engage kids, the ones who care about them individually, the ones whose classrooms are all about interdisciplinary, project-based, student-centered understanding, you know, not cramming forgettable facts into short-term memory, the best teachers I find and the best schools I visited never, ever reduce anything a student does to a number or a letter. No points, no rubrics, no grades. Instead, they have found more authentic and less destructive ways of collecting information about how kids are doing and then in qualitative ways through um, narrative reports and personal conferences sharing that with kids and their parents. So it all seems to come back to relationships. The relationships with the kids, the relationship with the parents, and developing those seem to be what inspires or are the foundation of good teaching and learning. Well, much of it goes back to that, but much of it also goes back to distinctions between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, between a doing-to classroom and a working-with classroom, between telling and asking, and between stuff worth learning and mere facts and standards Uh, That's about preparation for standardized tests, which we haven't talked about at all. But every minute spent helping kids to be better test takers is a minute not spent helping them to learn. So all of these things converge in asking us to rethink and radically question the traditional practices of education rather than just tweaking them to make them more efficient. So... Are there any closing thoughts you'd like to share to inspire the teachers listening to this, to think about what they're doing and how they're doing it and make their classrooms that much better? Um, Ask the kids. 
Uh, ask them in a way where there's, they're not sure what answer they're going to get. Really watch to see whether kids are thriving, whether they are excited about what they're doing, or they, they trudge through another day and count the minutes to the end of the period or the days to the weekend. Um, and don't try to make the radical changes I'm suggesting alone. Um, rather, reach out virtually on the internet and in person in your building to teachers who are struggling with these same things, the kind of teachers who know they have to be rebels, who know that if they are mindlessly capitulating to mindless mandates um, to raise standards and make kids well-behaved and get better test scores, they know that unless they're rebelling against this, they're not doing right by kids. So we got to connect with other teachers, with administrators who get it, um, in order to figure out how we can slowly get better at this. Um, in the short term, um, we have to figure out how to protect our kids from pressures imposed on schools by people who know nothing about learning. In the long run, we have to organize with our colleagues to try to change those policies so that we aren't always swimming upstream in order to help kids become good people and good learners who get a kick out of playing with words and numbers and ideas. Wow. Um, gosh, thank you so much for your time today, Alfie. Your perspectives are so challenging and inspiring. I really appreciate all the work that you do for our kids. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for saying that. And that concludes this episode of TG2Cast. If you'd like more information, check us out on our website at teachersgoinggradeless.com or our Facebook group. You can also follow us on Twitter at TG2Chat. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to make sure that you get future installments. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.